Welcome to Environmental Heroes Podcast. I'm Ryan Lungy. And I'm Julie Bolton. And this is episode five. It is. Oh my goodness, already. It's pretty exciting. We've got a wonderful guest today. We do, but to prime you, to prime our audience, okay. um, I'm going to start with a quote because I love this quote and I think it's it's just going to set the scene. Catch calls the once He let something fall. It's a truffler seed. It's the last one of all. You're in charge of the last of the truffler seeds. And truffler trees are what everyone needs. Plant a new truffler. Treat it with care. Give it clean water and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest. Protect it from axes that hack. Then the lorix and all of his friends may come back. Wow. I like that. Can our listeners guess who that's from? They can. Everyone guess now. that they can't ring in because this no. is a podcast. Oh. <laughs> it wouldn't so be... Oh, who is it? <laughs> Dr. Seuss, oh. of course. <laughs> of course. But the reason why I thought this was just so apt for this podcast, the whole idea of growing a forest and protecting it and then the community is going to come back, like the Lorix and all of his friends are going to come because we've got the forest. Yes. That's exactly what we're talking to our guests, yes, Edwina, Edwina Robinson. Yeah, and Edwina Robinson's been doing great work in the Canberra community helping the community to build microforests in our wetlands. And she's going to tell us exactly what a microforest is, yes, why they're so important, and what the role of communities are. Like we there's a question in there that I answer in there that I absolutely love when we said, well, you know, surely Edwina you could just go off and get a grant and do this yourself. Yeah. But that's not the point. And mm-hmm. I think hearing her tell us this story about the role of communities yeah. in sustainable development is Awesome. Oh, it's so exciting. Edwina is such a lovely person as well, isn't lovely. she? Lovely. So positive. Lovely. Um, everything's fun and easy with her. Um, she was the executive officer of Sea Change. Uh, she worked with the ACT government and now she's started her own social enterprise, the Climate Factory. Yeah. So um, let's hear. Yeah. Over to Edwina. Here we go. Local environment heroes saving the trees and the bees and doing it Daily. Welcome to Local Environment Heroes Podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're really excited to have you on. We're going to talk a lot about the work that you've been doing in the northern suburbs of Canberra around cooling the suburbs, which is really exciting. But um, first, Julie wanted to talk to you a little bit about your background. Yeah, so we know that you've worked in the ACT government as a landscape architect for a non-profit and now you're running your own business. What have you learned from each of these roles? That's a good question. So working in the ACT government, I worked as urban waterways coordinator and that really showed me, so that was with a number of wetlands, so retrofitting wetlands in um, Banksy Street, O'Connor, Lynham and Dixon wetland. And and during those roles, I really learnt the value of working with community. So probably one of the most exciting things in my profession was working uh, to plant the landscape at the Banksy Street, O'Connor with all the people from the Banksia Street area. And a lot of those people became friends. So one of them who I can think of, Malcolm Leslie, I just happened to bump into him when I was up in Cairns recently. So you form these connections with people that are quite long lasting. And the thing I like about it is that you're working for the common good. You're working for something beyond yourself. And that's really important to me. And every time I go back to the Banksia Street wetland, I'm so happy with how it's gone and it's over 10 years old, the vegetation now. And just to see those plants just burgeoning. I also worked in the, as you know, in the not-for-profit sea change. So I was the executive officer there. 
And in Sea Change, I learned the value of uh, working with community in terms of community empowerment. So I'm trying to apply the learnings from both sectors, so government and then community development, to the work I do with the Climate Factory. Okay, so where do you feel, out of those roles also, where do you feel you can have the most impact? The great thing is when you work for yourself is that you don't have to work to a board or a minister and you're more nimble and you can make decisions quickly. So that's not to say that I work completely on my own. Part of the model I have is I work with leaders in communities. So they may not know they're a leader at first, but I work with them. So, for example, with the Watson Microforest, there's been three women in the community who've been working as volunteer leaders leading that. And that's where you start having an impact, where you're demonstrating to people how you do the crowdfunding to raise money for these community microforests. And then I learn so much from them because they bring all these other skills and expertise to the table that I don't have. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Climate Factory and, yeah. and what it is? Yeah, so the Climate Factory is a social enterprise. So a social enterprise just means... It's a business that's doing good. So it's either a business doing good, it might be employing disadvantaged people or you might be working to improve the environment or it could be that a proportion of your profits are going towards other projects. So my main aim is to cool the landscape down by building community microforests. So that's what the Climate Factory is. We are a for-profit enterprise, so we're not a not-for-profit. And part of the reason I've chosen just to stay a for-profit is to go down the route of a not-for-profit, you have to set up a board and you have to report. You know what it's like being here at the Canberra Environment Centre or um, an organisation like Sea Change. You need to report and you need to be having regular meetings and I think you have to write a, an annual report. So I'm just trying to put all that aside at the moment and see if I can make this work as a social for-profit enterprise. But there's no harm also in being for-profit. No, there's, there's no, no shame. Harm. There's no, no, there's no shame. But you find sometimes if you're asking for, for donations or sponsorships, some businesses want the tax deductibility status. Mm. Uh, of course. That's the difference. Yeah. 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 So um, where do you derive, in that case, if it doesn't come from donations, how yeah. does the business operate? Yeah. Well, what's its business model? Yeah. I suppose I basically generate the money from the landscape architecture fees and the community kind of engagement fees that I'm charging. So at the moment, um, to give you an idea, I think at Watson maybe the fees are $10,000. But if you think, okay, I've just done the Downer microforest and it was a pilot project, but it maybe took me 18 months to 20 months to get one in the ground. It's not at the moment looking like a particularly profitable venture. That, that's not my aim, but I would like to make a living wage out of it. Mm. So it's it's kind of um, supported by um, other financial measures at the moment. And we have had people interested in sponsorship, but that might be a model that we need to go down. Mm. What inspired you to start the Climate Factory? Um, I was lying on a bed at the Bay, Bay of Islands in New Zealand uh, on holidays in 2019 pre-COVID I think I was just scrolling through my phone and I don't know what I was scrolling for. I already had the name The Climate Factory, but I didn't know what The Climate Factory was going to do. I've always been passionate about climate change and trying to address it with landscape. And I came across, uh, it was either the TED Talk by Shabhendu Sharma or his website, A Forest. 
He's an Indian um, former mechanic, no, industrial engineer who worked with Toyota. So he was very involved in uh, the manufacturing of components for vehicles. So he applied that methodology to creating forests. But then he also took on, uh, there's a bloke, Akira Miyawaki, who's a Japanese botanist, who created this model of building forests in Asia and other countries. So it's really dense planting. So you're looking at four plants at least per square metre or three to four. And a bit like permaculture, they introduce, um, you improve the soil by using something like uh, rice husk waste, something from the local environment. So you're improving your soil, you're not using chemicals and you're planting really densely. And what they found with their results is they got much faster growth, much more quickly than how a normal forest would normally do its succession. I'm not saying that we're going to get that growth, but when you look, we started planting the downer microforest in September last year. Seven months later, some of the silver wattles, which is a fast-growing species anyway, and we'd had an amazing year, they'd grown to three metres from tube stock that were probably at the most 30 centimetres high. And what, what would you have normally expected two meters max yeah wow yeah but i don't know so i don't have the data really i don't have any data Mm. unfortunately so so a micro forest is where you plant more densely than just planting out a normal garden so we're doing definitely we're doing about four plants per square meter and the act government wasn't very keen on this idea and wanted us to plant the trees more widely and what tends to happen in community plantings, as you probably well know, people don't always plant things where you've positioned them, so they get moved around. So I did notice I've been involved in the Sullivan's Creek microforest planting that was sponsored by Alicia Payne's office. And I had to go back yesterday. I did notice two little trees planted next to one another. But you'd actually see that in nature. So often you'll see, you know, two trees growing out of the same hole, basically. Are you trying to tell me that you don't need to use pesticides for these or um, herbicides? Uh, Sorry, so, herbicides. So um, at the Downer Microforest, we decided not to use any herbicides. Mm-hmm. So we asked the earthworks contractor to um, cut the top of the soil off. So that was the existing mainly cooch and all the weeds and we stockpiled that and we covered it with black builder's plastic. So we were trying to solarise all that organic material. But then my community group were very vigorous and then they covered the black builder's plastic with lots of mulch. And so the solarising effect of the black plastic was a bit diminished because the mulch was in a way creating a barrier to the, mm. the heat of, on, of the sun on the black. So after seven months, a lot of the weeds were still there, but the soil was pretty amazing. And at Watson, that's the, the route I want to go down is no use of herbicides. I'm trying to avoid them. Also, too, the other thing, we do have a bit of a weed issue at Downer. But if you were to go in with glyphosate and spray that between the plants, you're very likely because of that close density going to spray your good plants. Right, um, yeah. And we're also really trying to encourage pollinators into our microforests. Yeah. So one of the things I've been talking to Julie Armstrong for Act for Bees about um, creating some sunnier spots in the microforest with a focus on pollinator plants in those areas. So about native plants also, like yep. are you, like is the microforest in Canberra, like are you predominantly or only using native? So what 
so we're, at the moment we're using just plants that grow in Australia or, or from uh, like grow naturally in Australia. One of the things we've wanted to do though and we have done somewhat at Downer is to choose trees from hotter drier climates. So we know that Australia's temperatures have already risen over one degree since 1910 when national records began and it's likely that Australia will be hotter and drier in the future. So some of the trees we're selecting like currajongs I've sourced those from nurseries that are collecting from northwestern New South Wales where they experience really extreme mm. conditions. So not only – so temperatures up to 49 degrees, uh, this one nursery, and down to minus 9. So that's pretty incredible. We've also used the ANU's list that they put together for the Environment and Planning Directorate looking at the species that are likely to do better in a hotter, drier future. So some of those – the Currajong is the first one on that. The second one is Casuarina. And there's a number of other native trees we're using as well. But we've also incorporated some species that may be able to cope in the future. And one of them you wouldn't ever see normally planted in Canberra is Tuckaroo. So the um, genus is Cupaniopsis and it's grown as a street tree in Batemans Bay. So we've just thrown some in the microforest to see what happens. Yeah. Wow. And so the intention of planting the microforest is obviously to cool the surrounding area, yeah? So the trees pull carbon dioxide out. And if we have them in pockets around our urban areas, hopefully we'll be less affected by an increase in temperatures. That's the idea. The, the cooling effects are usually only within that close proximity. So I've read data that says, so let's say, um, let's say if a microforest is one bed is 10 metres wide, usually that cooling effect downwind will be about 10 metres the other thing that's really important, and that comes out from the Cooperative Research Centre for Water-Sensitive Cities, is that we need to have spaces, if we're going to be putting cooling infrastructure in, we need them to be well-maintained and well-irrigated. So the way we decided to embrace that at the Downer Microforest, and this is what the community at a community consultation said was very important to them, was that we incorporated water harvesting so we turned to Paul Totterdell. He's a water harvesting expert um, designer in the ACT. And Paul had actually grown up in Downer and was happy. He donated his services to that project. And he designed a series of 800 millimetre deep trenches that we ran along a contour line. And also I'd been reading, there's a really great water harvesting book from an American guy called... I think it's Brad Lancaster, so practical. And he's very much about water harvesting, just using hand tools and, you know, starting small, starting high in your catchment. So we had two mounds at the Downer Coal Street project. The park had previously been called the Two Boobs Park. And we changed the... the if. Um, so if you imagine um, if a woman is lying down and there's breasts, well, we actually scraped the top of those to create a concave top. So rather than so if anyone's got mounds in their garden, you really notice when it's drought, it, the plants get completely hammered because it's so dry on that mound. But what we've tried to do is capture any water falling on that site so it can go down into the earth. And that's the same principle with those water harvesting trenches is that water wicks out into the soil. But the really clever thing about Paul Totterdale's design is he's taken out the need for any pipe work, any geotextiles. Um, and often we're dealing with quite clay soils, so they hold the water quite well. But Paul also has a method where you can create infiltration points 
that come up to the surface of the soil and there if you need to particularly around establishment period or drought you can go and top up that trench and then that water you're making more water available for plants so the more water so simple but so clever isn't it it's really clever and I think people have known about these technologies for a really long time. If you go back to ancient civilizations, so if you read Dark Emu, I'm sure yeah, there must be yeah, references and it, in there. And and if you look at kind of ancient civilizations, they were doing water harvesting and they were doing amazing things in deserts. So, but we really need to be getting water into our soils so our plants can evaporate and create that kind of evaporative cooling that's important for us. Yeah. So not only is it is it clever and intuitive in that you're using the system to your advantage mm-hmm. but it's also I guess you know something I know people often struggle with when you talk about well you need to change your behavior and be more sustainable people go oh, I don't have time I don't yep. have time and you know by building this microforest and then saying to the community we have to go out and water it every day like is that realistic but by building it into the system from the beginning that's right I think that's a you know it's an easy solution and often what you has what happens in these public spaces and we know this from the first Canberra city farm that was built there's that we often don't have access to that water even though water may be going through a plot we don't have access to it and then there's a whole lot of rules around taking water from another property and putting it onto a site so if we can create these systems where we're not relying on any potable water input so that's drinking water Mm. and we're just looking at good earthworks good water capture it's kind of a win-win win Mm. yeah it's amazing how applicable are these ideas to people's backyards in Canberra so I've done one microforest in someone's front garden so really um, if you're going to be building a microforest a microforest is mainly composed of all evergreen vegetation You don't want it to be shading out parts that you want sunny in winter. So the garden we did was on a south was was on a corner block right across the road from the Downer Street microforest, and it was someone. Um, Her name's Leah Moore. She's a geologist, Dr. Leah Moore. She actually tutored me um, at Uni of Canberra when I studied geology. You had to do it as part of your landscape architecture degree. She just really liked the idea. So she already had a, a native garden and we just planted 300 additional plants to create this really dense planting. So the great thing about that is that, and there's a lot of other gardens nearby the Coal Street um, microforest, there's a lot of other quite heavily native gardens that what we're doing in a way from our gardens to our microforest is creating stepping stones for wildlife. And that's really important. Recently I attended a Act for Bees workshop at Gin and Derry and something I hadn't realised, European honeybees have a foraging range of 500, sorry, five kilometres, whereas um, native pollinators are only about 500 metres. So we really need to be quite positively building Mm. into our landscapes much more um, pollinator habitat. So people have power by using their backyards to increase their Back, habitat. Backyards, um, median strips. So the rules in the ACT, you can have planting up to half a metre. But but that's fine when you're looking at a... If you're thinking about some of the planting that occurs down Northbourne Avenue in the median strip where the tram is, there's actually a whole lot of um, beautiful flowering daisies and all some of the, the native grasses. That could be a wonderful kind of little corridor for a whole lot of pollinators, but also birds. So, yeah, people have power. I think people are more powerful when they band together and that's what we're trying to encourage with the microforests. I was just going to ask, like, 
you spoke about community earlier on and that comment mm. then about how people are more powerful when they band together. I guess that's the importance and that's the role of getting community engaged in these projects. Like you could, couldn't you go off and get a grant and do this yourself? Yeah. And but I sp- it wouldn't have the same... No, it doesn't have the same resonance. What you're trying to do is um, create ownership and stewardship by people. So I'm often of the view if someone gets something for free, they don't value it. Value it. So you can you can think about the times you've gotten something for free and maybe haven't looked after it very well. I know I always have this argument with my children. They they might have something and then they don't look after it. When you've paid for it, all of a sudden you need to care for it better. Mm-hmm. So with the way we work, we uh, usually run a crowdfunding campaign. So those people have a vested interest in the success of that project. And then not all those people will necessarily come and plant and then we'll have other people who contribute by volunteering their labour into what we do and then they start owning the project. I actually went to the Downer Microforest this morning. I was meeting someone there and I had a bloke come up and, you know, I said hi. I recognised him. He attended a number of our working bees. He said to me, oh, it's going quite well, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is. I'm really happy with how it's going. And he said, I didn't think it would work. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, we're also proving to, with our first project, given its success and ha- how great it looks compared to how it had looked previously, we're, s- we're proving it. But working together, I think the, the next one, Watson's, going to be super duper. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess there's there's going to be a lot of hot places very soon. I mean, there already are. And a lot of space, I can think of three areas just around my little house yep. in yep. Hackett that could be easily planted out with this. Yep. You could be, or you probably already are, in huge demand. <laughs> is that your plan, like to scale um, this? The plan, plan is to scale, definitely to scale, but it's trying to work out the mechanism of scaling. So one of the things I do do is I run a, a workshop, How to Create a Microforest and Innate Steps, and I've created um, a manual about so that's not Emmanuel the person it's a manual the booklet so setting out the eight steps and we what we're doing is because we've now had three lots of people who've run crowdfunding campaigns we're learning all the way we go along and we're sharing that crowdfunding campaign with one another and then we had people within the Watson group who had great graphic design skills so they've shared that branding so we're building up this package where it becomes easier and easier for people to implement and it doesn't have to be a microforest. It could be just revegetation along your street corridor or it could be a food forest or it could be birdscaping like the birdscaping project we did across from Turner Primary School. It's just a methodology to revegetate on community land. Mm. Um. I may be correct, Edwina, in thinking that you brought the term microforest to Canberra. I'm not sure. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not sure. It depends who you talk to. I think I came up with the word, but there's only so many words in the English language. That's true. Well, let's assume for all, all <laughs> yeah. accounts and purposes that it you was, did. It was you. I was so excited when I saw the Downer project get up. Yeah. Did you think that the other projects would follow so quickly? It's just taken off. Yeah. I, I didn't know. And so I must admit, I have been excited. So the person who stepped up from Watson, some of you may know is Purdy Bowden and she said look I'm really interested in doing this at Watson and she said once she'd seen what we'd done at Downer she was right right I'm going to do this in my suburb and she talked to a couple of people like a couple of people at school she got Liz Adcock on board some of you may know Liz Um, very passionate about the environment 
works in the digital space um, and has been doing lots of things with Majura Primary School. So she ran um, an art competition and worked with kids to make dioramas. And then uh, Joan Cornish, who was a really long time Watson person, came on board. She's since moved to Bermagui. Um So just how they embraced it, I think the time was really right. And I wasn't sure, is this just going to be, for those of you who are not Canberra listeners, the suburbs we're talking about are, are often what's described as a lentil belt. So <laughs> if I was to um, describe people... They'd be well-educated professionals, not everyone, but lots of them, a bit left-leaning. You know, you probably get the most green votes in these sorts of suburbs and relatively affluent. And then mm. if you compare it, so the next person who came along was um, Jennifer Bardsley from Holt. So Jennifer's on maternity leave. Uh, she's just had her third son and she's obviously just looking for something to do in her <laughs> spare time. So she's normally a public servant, as are some of the other people I've been working with. And, but we didn't know the whole about Holt. We didn't know about I didn't know about the demographics, but I assumed it wasn't quite as well healed. And if you look at an urban a map of urban hotspots from CSIRO 2017, Holt's one of those suburbs. So oh. West Belconnen, yeah, hot, dry, likely to be hotter and drier in the future. And CSIRO um, cross referenced that heat data with uh, demographic data and disadvantaged data. So it's really in one of those areas. We didn't know how the crowdfunding campaign went. So it went quite well at first. Then we were halfway through the campaign. They'd only got to $10,000. The goal was twenty, But it's got there. It got to twenty, uh, over $22,000 at the that weekend. That was on the weekend, yeah. And one of the developers, um, Gin and Derry, um, we went and gave a talk out there last Friday. They, they've generously donated another $4,000. And so we've got a success in Hull. We've also were successful in applying for a grant for that one as well. So it's really exciting to see how it's growing. Mm. And so when I've run these workshops and transcending, like trans, you know, not just in one pocket, as you said before, yeah. like the fact that is now going to other areas. Yeah, and we're actually arguing though we need to support people in more disadvantaged areas who may not have the ability to. Um, it may be just that they're so busy just getting food on the table. So it's also an equity issue. So a lot of the people who are leading in communities tend to be well-educated professionals. And we've made a proposal, actually in the ACT budget, I don't know if I can say that, but we've, we're asking for over 300000 to um, employ someone and build five microforests over two years in the most disadvantaged areas in Canberra. Mm, which is another part of sustainability that I think sometimes we don't talk as much about like we often talk about sustainability in terms of the environment but yep. we also need to talk about it in terms of equity and disadvantage uh, and leaving no one yep. behind that's as right. we green and and it's all right for people who are professionals to have their solar panels and yeah. um, you know their electric cars but there's a whole lot of people who they might be renting forever and if we can create cool places in our urban environments at least we can be enhancing well-being um, we thought we might ask just about another project of yours. Yeah. But, um, moving on from microforests really quickly. Um, you built a tiny house in I your did. backyard, didn't you? Well, it was actually my son. Um, so we built two tiny houses. Uh, the first, which one are you referring to? Both. <laughs> tell, tell us about your tiny house experience. Uh, so th that was when I lived in O'Connor. So I lived in a um, uh, monocrete house. So they're really hot, cold and cold in winter and hot in summer. 
And we, we were looking for a project. So my son and I decided he was going to convert a shipping container. Shipping containers were all the rage at the time. And that was his project for about nine months. Um, and then he went overseas and I lived in the shipping container. So it was a six by 2.2 metre shipping container. So we extended it slightly to have a little ki- tiny kitchen and a little tiny bedroom. And we tried to do everything sort of ecologically. So we put in double glazed um, windows, uh, bamboo flooring, and we tried to buy this eco insulation that got sprayed in. It just wasn't enough insulation. So it still got really, really hot uh, and really cold in summer. And then he embarked on another project. He came back from overseas and decided he needed to build another tiny house in my back garden. So this one he made out of uh, panels. So where you... um, put two plywood panels together and they've got styrofoam in the middle which isn't one of the greenest products around but it creates this really strong structural panel so it was basically made out of that with a mezzanine level and when I was selling the duplex he dismantled that and sold that to his father and then rebuilt it at his father's house oh wow (laughs) so um yeah (laughs) so um, and how did you find living in the tiny house? Uh, it was lovely in s- summer other than the heat and that was more the, the shipping container was hotter than the, the plywood one. Um, I loved at night just cooking outside. So I'd cook outside like on a gas ring and you'd just be in the garden with the animals and the chickens. That was awesome. Winter was, you know, because the days are so short, you'd get home from work and you're just in this one space and it's dark. So I'm, I'm sworn off ever living in a tiny house again. <laughs> I must say um, my partner and I have built a house in Maruya and it's one bedroom but it's 90 square metres. So, and, and we feel like we need one more room. So we've got a kind of office. Well, he's got an outdoor office, uh, office outside but I don't have an office space. So I'd like an office space. Yeah. Please, Peter, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that our houses don't have to be as big as we've always had them, I guess, is something that comes through for me in the way that you've been. Yeah, De- definitely. And because every time you've got um, in large buildings, you've got to furnish it, heat it, cool it, clean it, you know, just your embodied energies goes up. So the thing we tried to do with our house in Maria was that it was all north facing, so we. But it was so important. We had a lot of light, so a lot of light, double glazing, concrete slab on ground, um, fans for cooling. No, no heating, which has proved a tiny bit of a problem. Uh, it's beautiful when the sun shines, but if the sun doesn't shine, which does happen, maybe you know you might get two, three, four days in a row. It gets mm. a bit cool, so we may look at redressing that mm. uh, down the track. I think we're close to asking our environment hero questions. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you about the social enterprise model. It's something that really interests me and Mm. I think it's important for the future of of our businesses. Mm. What kind of advice can you offer to people who are looking to step into this space? I know that you've probably taken a lot of opportunities that were presented to you to to build your business. what do you recommend for people wanting to get started in a social enterprise? Yeah, I participated in a social enterprise accelerator program in Canberra run by the Mill House. So that was called Grist. I found that really valuable. So they provide you with a mentor, um, lots of sessions. A lot of it, the last one they needed because of COVID, they needed to run online. 
So that's been really useful. And I'm noticing there's a number, so Start Some Good is the crowdfunding platform we used. I noticed they're also running things for social enterprises too. So I think just keep your eye out for programs. It's really important to, to learn from others and find out, connect with other people locally because it can be it can be a really hard slog when you start off you're so uncertain if it's going to work so I've proved it can work but I haven't proved it's financially viable yet and I think that's like lots of businesses lots of businesses fail in the first is it the first five years or the first year Mm. and we've proved that people want our product but then it's who is your customer and who pays That's so important as part of what your thinking is. Mm. So it's having that clear at the very beginning. Uh, It's not always necessarily clear. I thought schools would be a really good um, microforest target group. And then I approached a few schools, but then COVID got in the way. I've actually just run a workshop at a school, at Bergman Anglican School with their students. So, But it's really hard to say to a public school, hey... I suppose unless you've got an established program, like ask them to pay kind of up what it costs you to run something like this. Yeah. So I, I'm still working. I think mm. you're yeah. still working like any business on who, who your market is. Yep. Wh- while you're still wanting to do good, you, you're not wanting to to compromise on the core things you're doing. Okay. Mm. Well, do you want to ask our first hero questions, really? I do. Okay. Edwina, congratulations. You have just been elected the president of the world. What's the one change you try to implement first? I would have a change around revegetation. So I would be setting goals that there'd be no bare earth and we'd vegetate from our homes along our streets to our parklands, to our waterways, to our hills, to the coast. And I think you know, we'd find our well-being indicators went up markedly with that. So that mm. that's what I'd do. We need a green army. We do. Yeah, we do. I like that one. Um, well, let's look into the future. It's the year 2030. Yep. Describe the world you see around you. Yeah, I think I was actually going to use that last answer I just <laughs> used. <laughs> so I suppose um, if well, I was… Well, vegetation <laughs> succeeded. Yeah, and I think it's that people working together that's really important to me so if we're getting out of our houses and so some of the people from the down and microforest when I've asked them what they've liked they've said we really like the way it brings community together how it's activated the space so one of the examples was Amit who leads the down on microforest volunteer coordinators he said Uh, A couple of weeks ago, this couple came along with their picnic rug and a bottle of wine and they laid the picnic rug down and they canoodled and they used the space, you know, but no one had been using the space because it was so hot and dry and dusty and just completely unattractive and it wasn't a place you'd want to hang out in. Mm. You know, now if we're encouraging people to have picnic and, you know, make out, that's (laughs) that's pretty cool. (laughs) Was it the birds and the bees? Yeah. That's, what, that's what you're bringing. <laughs> yeah. In more ways than one. Um, so who are your environmental heroes? Ah, I have to say Maddie Diamond, who I used to work with, um, Maddie headed up as the executive officer at Sea Change. Maddie, when I first met her, was 23 or 24. I was really impressed she'd started a local volunteer group called trash gather I think they were called trash mob previously 
I was really impressed that someone so young had just created this community of people and they were doing some great stuff. She, she really got how to do community development and community action and she was voted as the ACT Young Australian of the Year and she went for a meeting with our Prime Minister Scott Morrison and she had the words climate justice emblazoned across her chest and I was just blown away. I was so proud. I saw her on TV. I was so proud of her. And and I to me that was um, a, a young woman who really stood up for what she thought was incredibly important and, you know, I didn't have anywhere near that capability when I was her age. What about your hot tip for our listeners? How can they be more environmentally friendly or aware? I'd be really saying, okay, we're going to have a hotter, drier future. So really be looking at what you can plant at home. Now, if you don't own your own home, find out about wicking pots and at least grow some trees or something, you know, in big pots. What you're going to need to be doing is looking at trees for a hotter, drier future. So trees are just so important. They give us so much. So they take up carbon dioxide, they give us oxygen, they cool the environment, they provide habitat, they intercept dust, um, they do stuff with stormwater. So they're really amazing. So I think planting planting for pollinators as well is really important. Mm. Um, and so then finally, what's your final slogan or your quote or something that you live by, like mm. a saying that is really important and integral to who mm. Edwina is? Together, we can make a difference. Mm. Together, we can beat the heat. Nice. Nice. Thank you so much, Edwina. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily